Good morning. Good morning. You guys doing all right? Yes. Glad to hear it. I am as well. Well, welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside. It is Big Sunday. Thank you for that. It is a celebration. Um, one, because there's lots of food, and that's a, that's a good thing to celebrate, right? It's already gone. So there was lots of food, and you ate it, so that's what we're here for. <clears throat> also, it's important because we have our treehouse, elementary-aged kids with us, and our youth group. The Aftershock youth group is in here with us. So once a month, the elementary age kids are with us because I think it's important for them to understand what it is to be in church with other folks, big folks, big in age, you know. And then for the youth group, every other week, I think is what we're going to land on of them being in here with us. It's important for them as well to be able to exist in church with other people. Um, so glad you guys are with us. Did you know that we live in an amazing world? Yes. Did you know that? Yes. I mean, seriously. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's mesmerizing. It is a fantastic, fascinating place. Now, I love to be out in nature. I love to be just away from everything, close to creation, to the things that God has made, so I can enjoy it in a different kind of way. It's like creation in the midst of Creator, like coming together. Does anybody else like that? Like just something about being there. It's special, at least I found, in participating in God's creation, enjoying it in that unique way. Which is why when I read a passage like 1 John 2, 15 to 17, which we're going to look in a minute, it gets my attention really quickly. In fact, let's, let's start by just reading the text. So this is where we're going to be today. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It's only three verses. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So right off the bat, I'm told not to love the world. Wasn't that the first thing that John said? Do not love the world. And so I'm thinking, wait a minute, John, why are you taking away something that I love? <laughs> I, I just explained, and a lot of you agreed with me, like, the world is awesome. It's beautiful. We love to experience it. So what is going on here, John, that you're going to tell me that you can enjoy the world, God, but I can't? That seems to be what's going on. Because... When God created the world and he looked at it, what did he say that it was? Good. Very good. Like, God, you said that this is good. <laughs> and now you're saying I can't love it. And then John, the same author, is here in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 16, which you may be familiar with, says, For God so loved the what? World. What's going on here, Lord? Again, I ask, you can love the world, but I can't. I mean, I get it, you're God, but I want to love the world. Like, this place is amazing. So what's happening here? How, how can we make sense of this passage and see what it means for us here today? Because it's significant. But before we get there, 
I want to ask that you just join me in prayer because uh, we can't pray enough. Um, so we're going to pray for the message. We're going to pray for our hearts to receive the, the word of God. And then we'll jump into it. So let's pray. Uh, gracious God, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us here this, this morning. God, we know that you are you are a good and faithful God. Nothing that involves you is by mistake or just happens that way, Lord God. I believe firmly that each person here is here for a reason and a purpose, that you've got something for each of us here from your word this morning, and I pray that you would speak that through me. Lord God, let me just be a conduit. Don't, don't let me get in the way or unduly influence anything, Father God. Just let the truth alone remain in the hearts of those that are here this morning. God, thank you for your word that shapes us, prepares us, and equips us for action. Lord, let us move through this morning's message with focus and with all intention and commitment to allowing the Word of God to transform us. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, if you've got questions during the message, you can text them to that number right there. If for some reason that number's not on the screen and you think of a question, go to PillarOceanside.com slash bulletin, and that number is in there again. It's a really great way that we can interact with each other. You know me, you hear me say that every week, but um, love to interact with you that way. Um, <clears throat> if you're in the treehouse or you're in the youth group, you can take notes, and I, I strongly encourage you that you do. Um, you can also take those notes back to Miss Christie, who has the treasure box. You can share a little bit about what you, what you learned while you're in here and, and perhaps grab something from the treasure box. The rest of you, your treasure box is in heaven, so you shouldn't have to wait. <clears throat> what we love matters. That's the title of the message today. What we love matters. So let's let's start by asking the million-dollar question, at least the million-dollar question in my mind, from verse 15. What is the world that John is describing here? Because he told us not to love it. And to be fair, John does use various versions, I should say, uh, of words. Remember that the, the, the original language has different words that we kind of just assign a broad English word over that. So uh, the word and the context have significant impact in what we're talking about here. So let's start with a setting here in 1 John because that's where we are, and then we'll go on from there. So, so here's what John is describing in terms of the world. One scholar puts it like this. He says, The world is the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. The life of human society as organized under the power of evil. Another one says this. The world as the comprehensive sphere of human life. That means like everything that involves us. The sphere of comprehensive human life that is under the control of the evil one. So that's kind of what we're talking about here when John is describing that. So you're asking yourself, well, how, how did you arrive at that definition? Did you just make that up on the spot? Um, no. We can actually look at John's words himself and, and gain a, 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 an understanding of that. So back up. If you have your Bible open, you can just back up in this very chapter, chapter 2 to verse 2, and we'll read it. It'll be on the screen too. John, 1 John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the what? 
The what world? The whole world. So we see that Jesus died for the sins of the world, which if you say it another way, the whole world is in need of forgiveness. That's another way we can look at that. There's nobody in the world who is not in this category of needing to be cleansed from their sin and rebellion against God. The entire world has been infected, so to speak, however you want to look at it. We're all in this state. Now, I think most of us probably knew that. You had some idea of that. You've heard maybe in Sunday school the idea of original sin, the fact that we're under the curse. Like None of us are uh, out from underneath this thing. But let's get more specific. Um, again, if you have your Bible open, you can flip over to 1 John chapter 5. So a little bit later in John's letter, in chapter 5, verse 19, we see this. Um, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That, that's pretty clear. You can see how these scholars got their definition of what the world is. But let's, let's go one more step. Let's go to John's gospel account, because... This is an important biblical truth. It's going to have an impact on what we're doing and where we're going with this. So I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, go with me to John 14, chapter, uh, verse 30. John 14, 30. <clears throat> I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Who is the ruler of this world? Who is it? See, a lot of people are confused by this because I asked them, Who's the God of this world? They're like, yeah, God, Jesus, the God of the Bible. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Satan is the ruler of this world. He has a system set up here that exists outside of God. It is, to use John's words, in the darkness. Remember we talked in chapter 1 about light and dark. This is a world that is ruled, influenced, dominated, governed by Satan. It's a world where God is not ruling. So if God is not ruling in this world, who is? Okay, who else then is ruling in the place of God in our own lives? We are people. People are on their own thrones in their own world, determining right from wrong, doing what we want, excluding God altogether. Does that sound like a mess to you? Well, it is. Because look around. Right? That's why the, the world is the way that it is. That's why there's lawlessness and destruction and tragedy and despair and sorrow. And on and on and on. The world is broken. Because Satan is in control. Now, it may seem easy at like a 30,000-foot view to go, well, I'm not going to be involved in that evil stuff. I don't want to be a part of that system that has this destructive and harmful pattern to life. That's probably what you're thinking. You're like, I don't want any part of that. You should give me a yes and amen to that. Amen. You don't want a part of that. The problem is the devil, Satan, the evil one, whatever you want to call it, has found a way to be very subtle 
while still achieving his goal of putting you on the throne of your own life. It's crafty, sneaky. It's a life, again, where we are in control. And we choose what we want for ourselves. So John's point here in this first voice, verse rather, is that we are not to love the world or the things in the world, as I've just described them. All that stuff that's under the influence of the evil. And then he goes on to say that the love for the world and the love for the Father are mutually exclusive. What does that mean? Mutually exclusive, what does it mean? They, they, they can't exist together. They don't, they don't mesh, but they, they cannot exist in the same place. So you cannot love the world and you cannot love the Father at the same time. It's impossible. You either love one or you love the other. That's a pretty clear statement from John. You can't have it both ways. So this reminds me of sort of my initial thought in one of my comments this morning about God being able to love the world, but I can't. Now, does God love the world? Yes. Does he love the world? Yes. Okay, I just, just want to make sure we're tracking. Of course he does. <laughs> he absolutely does. But when we consider what we just learned, the context of that love is different. Clearly, God's not in favor of all the evil that exists in the world. He's not like going, yeah, look at, look at what's going on down there. But those people that are under the influence of Satan are the object of his love and his saving activity. God's love for the world is redemptive in nature. He wants to redeem the world. His desire is that none should perish and that all should come to what? Life, repentance, change. That's why he sent his son in the first place, right? This is a love that God has for the world, and by extension, it's a love that we have once we become followers of Jesus as well. But that's not the love that John is describing here in this passage. And hopefully you can begin to see that now. Now the reason I'm making such a big deal about this is because the sway of the evil one, the way in which he moves in the world, and the systems that exist here, they're strong, they're dangerous, and like I said, they're subtle. Which leads sort of to the next question I want to ask is, how is it dangerous? So if we ask what the world is, as John is describing it, it's, it's all the things that encompass humanity that are under the, the, the command, if you will, of the evil one. That's the world systems and all the things about our fallen nature that exist. So then we want to ask then, how is it dangerous? How, how does that impact us? So in verse 16, we're given three examples of what things in this world to be sort of wary of. What are those three things in verse 16 that John gives us? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, if you're looking at the ESV. So I want to say up front, <clears throat> these are three broad examples. What we don't want to do is drill down too much and, and just say, this means one specific thing, because it doesn't. They're not meant to be boiled down to three sort of dominating avenues through which sinful behavior happens. They are symptoms of a much bigger problem where the world is being alienated from God. Okay, so these are just going to help point us in the direction of areas where this system that's in place 
is going to influence us in certain ways. It's going to govern some of our choices, and it's going to choose to define truth for us or allow us to define our own truth without consequence, or so it, it says. And under that system, as we're all well aware, we will fall short of the glory of God. So that being the case, I think the best way to move through this world as believers is to know what we're up against. Right? They teach in, in, in strategy and, and, and tactics in the military to know your enemy. You've got to know what you're up against. To go into it blind is foolishness, right? So we've got to know if Satan is in control here and he's got a plan, let's study out that plan and know what we're up against. Amen? So let's look briefly at these three items that John lists for us. First, the desires of the flesh. So when you hear the word flesh, man, that's a very Christian term. Somebody once called this, these things that we talk about in church, Christianese, right? Because if somebody from the outside, a non-believer comes in and they're, we're talking about the flesh this and the flesh that, they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? Because to them, what's the flesh? It's the meat on your bones, right? Flesh and bones. Like, you're like, well, I got flesh too. Like, you got flesh. What, what, what is happening? So we want to be careful to not overuse words or, or assume that everybody knows what it is that we're talking about here. So I want to share something with you that my favorite preacher once said during a message I heard. He said, if you want to understand the word flesh and you want to get sort of this biblical standpoint, here's what you got to do. Take the word flesh, take off the last letter and read it backwards. What does that come up with? It's here. It's self. Essentially, it's describing the desire for things in this world that temporarily satisfy our selfish urges. That's what we're talking about here. Us. To fully grasp the idea, I think we need to go back to um, the, the initial point that I was making. That the world is ruled by Satan. And everything in it is under his influence to include the sinful nature that exists in every one of us. If you're a believer here, you've been redeemed, you've been made new. However, as you exist in this world until you leave, there still remains that remnant of the flesh, that sinful nature. We're never going to get rid of that outside of leaving this life and going into the next. There's always going to be an element of that. And as long as that's the case, the ruler of this world rules those desires that are within us. He has an influence over that nature. That's why John is so adamant about not loving anything that's in this world. Because it's all affected. It's all tainted. It's all soiled. It's all messed up. And because of that, our sinful nature is intensely searching your sinful nature is intensely searching for things from this world that promise to satisfy us. That's the constant battle that's happening within every one of us. And as followers of Jesus, as I said, I want to make sure I'm clear on this. We are born again. We have been made new. And the Spirit dwells in us, takes up residence in us. However, that old sinful nature remains somewhat intact. Now, it's fighting a losing battle, right? The enemy has been defeated, and he knows what his end state will be, to be completely eliminated. 
But in the meantime, he's not going down without a fight. And we all know this because we all experience it every single day. That's exactly what Paul pinpoints in Galatians. So I want to look at Galatians chapter 5, 1 verse, chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. That's the capital S. That means the Spirit of God. The things that are within us that are holy. The desires of the flesh are the, against the desires... Sorry. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How many of you can relate exactly to this struggle? Raise your hand. Seriously, raise your hand if you can relate to this struggle. If your hand's not in the air, you're lying to yourself. I'm serious. I'm not messing around, guys. This morning, sorry. This is a big deal. It's a very, very big deal. Because, as you know, the things of this world are very slippery slope. You start to take one step in the direction, and all of a sudden, boom, you're down there 100 feet where you didn't want to go. It's a very slippery slope. So if the desires of the flesh are not of the Spirit, as Paul said in Galatians, then listen, we can distinguish between the two in at least one simple way. The Spirit of God is eternal, right? Always has been, always will be. And then we, as believers, have been promised eternal life in Jesus, right? We have the promise of eternal life. So then, the fleshly desires in view here, the fleshly desires that we are to avoid, are things that are only significant in this world, in this life. So if you want to kind of make a distinction between whether or not you're toying with the things of the world or not, the things that are only significant in this world is what he's talking about. Can you see what I'm saying? Let's drill down a little bit further because I know this is it's going to grate against some of us, well, all of us, if, if I'm being honest. They're selfish desires because they are a temporary fix to an insignificant concern. A temporary fix to an insignificant concern. It's that old saying, have you ever heard somebody say, don't polish the brass of the Titanic? Right? This thing is going down. The Titanic sank, right? And here you got this person like, oh, let's make sure everything's right. What's the point? It's going down. This world, as, as we see it under the, the, the control of Satan, is going down. <laughs> and everything in it, and, and we read in verse 17, all of it's passing away. Nothing of it will remain. So why are we doing all that we can to, to hold it up and to give all of our effort and all that we have to the things of this world that are ultimately just going to pass away? Don't polish the brass in the Titanic. It's going down. This world is going down. I think you get the point. But remember I told you that part of the danger here is that Satan can be very subtle in how he presents certain things to us. So, so we got to give careful consideration, evaluate the things that we devote our time and energy to, as well as the obvious areas that compete for attention, our attention in this world. All right, I spent a lot of time on that first one because I wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page. That was the desires of the what? Flesh, which taking it off and moving it and reading it backwards is here. Okay, we're good. Desires of the eyes. This one we've actually spent some time on. Um, Mike has 
uh, talked several times about the key phrase, um, they saw that it was good or they saw that it was beautiful. You remember that? So we see that phrase in the Bible a couple of times where following that phrase, there are some bad things that happen. Where's the very first time in the Bible that we see that somebody saw that something was good and something really bad happened after that? Genesis 3.6. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was able to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And of course, at that moment, that's it. That's when sin entered into the world. That's why the world is broken today the way that it is. That's why it is the way that I described it, under the rule of Satan. That's what happened in that moment. Because Eve saw that it was good or that it was enticing. That's one. What's another one where somebody saw something that was good and led to a really bad thing? Think a kingly person. David. Second Samuel 11.2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of King's house that he saw the roof of a woman bathing and the woman was what? Here's David, a married man, looking at Bathsheba, a married woman. Beautiful. What happens? Well, it's a family show, but let's just say that nothing good came of that <laughs> at all other than marriage or a pregnancy out of wedlock and murder and all kinds of stuff. All because he saw that it was beautiful. Now there's one more I want to hit that's maybe a little bit less common. Let's go to Joshua 7.21. Actually, don't put that up yet. Let me explain what's happening here. So, Israel is being about to be punished because God said, don't take any of the spoils. They had just had some victories in, in the region and God said, don't touch any of the spoils. Don't touch any of the riches. That's mine. Don't, don't mess with it. And this guy named Achan, he, he saw something and was like, ooh, that's, I like that. Took it, put it under his tent, and hid it. And then God brings all of Israel together and goes, I'm going to figure out who, what happened. I'm going to figure out who he brought every tribe, every family, every person. He brought every single person until it was discovered what had happened. And this is what it says in Joshua 7, 21. This is Achan talking. He said, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. He didn't profess that until God had brought all of Israel together and basically called him out. He's like, I know it's you. What happened? Well, that's what happened. I defied you, God, because I saw that it was beautiful and I took it. So there's something here in these little eyeball thingies that we use all the time that is bad and dangerous if we're not careful. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think we can understand what this is all about. But, but to be as concise as I can be, the desires of the eyes is being captivated by the outward appearance of things without considering their true value. That's what we're talking about here. It's being led to something based solely on its outward appearance. And then acting on that desire in spite of its destructive end. You think David knew what was going to happen when he slept with Bathsheba? 
I mean, come on. Do you think it was gonna, he thought, oh, this is going to turn out great. I'm married, but I'm going to go get that girl pregnant. I think he knew exactly what was going to happen, but he did it anyway. Well, let's just say he did it. Put yourself in any situation where you're tempted by something that you see, even if it's fleeting, you know that's wrong. And what do we do? We do it anyway. But it's here, it's the desires of the eyes that begin us down that path. Now listen, we're, we're going to struggle. We might see something and, and move in that direction, but we can cut it off. We can, we can stop the process from happening, right? So it doesn't mean that, oh man, i gotta, I got to wear blinders everywhere because I'm just going to fall into sin. Like, that's foolishness. We may look at something and begin that direction and whoop, no. When it comes to the lust, guys, I'm talking to you, and you're looking at somebody who is not yours, <laughs> we talk about, in accountability places, bouncing your eyes. Like you're looking over here, and you're, like, you're looking at something, and you're like, oh, I like... You know, there's, there's a trained response, like, no, I'm, I'm not supposed to look at that, because the temptation is to continue to look. But you don't have to continue down the path. There's, there's another way out of that. And listen, there can be any number of things that catch our attention, that catch our eyes, not the least of which is what I just talked about, lust and pornography. But that's just one example. We get on that? Next one, pride of life. This one I think is also is, is fairly easy to understand, but I think it has the finest uh, line to walk. Uh, you'll, you'll hopefully understand and see what I mean by that. At its core... The pride of life consists in an overconfidence in your own wealth and resources. Now, we all need a certain amount of, of money and resources to exist in this world, right? We, we need that. So having those things is not the issue. Having money, having a home, having a car, that is not the issue. It's even okay to be proud of what you do for a living. How many of you are proud of what you do for a living? There, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Unless perhaps you maybe you run an internet scam where you're taking advantage of unsuspecting people under the guise of a Nigerian king. <laughs> then maybe you shouldn't be proud of that. Prince. Prince, sorry. Uh, Nigerian prince. But here's the bottom line in this equation. It's, it's the problem. When a person becomes so confident in their own wealth and their own worldly things, produces in them this sort of level of pride that then causes them to disregard their need for God. They arise to a place where they no longer need God because they have everything they need. Their confidence their safety, their security is in their stuff. And there's also this sort of connotation in the word that John uses here as a boasting. It's an arrogance in your bank account, in your house, in your position, in your fashion. The pride of life. That's what we're talking about here. It's, it's a an undue confidence in the things of this world that we do need, but that cause us to push away from a reliance upon the God who actually provided it in the first place. 
Because we sing often, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Like it's it's from him in the first place. And who, who are we to, to push him inside and say, no, I got here. I'm good. So if I'm going to sum up these three categories, <clears throat> we exist in a world right now that tells us that there's nothing wrong with selfish desire. The world tells you that. The world tells you there's nothing wrong with wanting things that you can't or shouldn't have. No, go after that thing. I remember my dad, who was not a Christian, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, he had car mats in his Camaro that said, if it feels good, do it. That's, that's what the world tells us to do. And certainly there's nothing wrong with rising to the top and then rubbing that in everyone else's faces. Climbing the corporate ladder, like all that stuff, the world tells us there's nothing wrong with that. But John tells us that these things are not from the Father, they're from what? They're from the world, from the evil one, absolutely. Which may have you asking, and then how do we exist in a world like this without being pulled into it? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Because reality is, my friends, we're here, right? Smack dab in the middle of this fallen world that is under the hand of Satan himself. Wouldn't it be just, oh man, wouldn't it be easier if when you got saved, you said amen and boom, you got like beamed up, amen. right? In fact, Mike, can we like maybe work on that? Just put a little effort toward thinking like maybe there's something we can come up with. I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> You're already looking into it? Okay. Except that. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't. The bigger problem that it doesn't work is that Jesus already addressed this. In fact, he made it very clear that we are to be here. We all know that. But that's my last question. If we're here in this world and we're not to be a part of its evil system, not to love the things in it, then what should we love? above. <laughs> All the above. But I'm going to give you one specific thing when we get there. Let's start, though, with a reminder that we are supposed to be here. Because some of us want nothing more than to be there. And out of this messed up world that I spent too long defining, we just want to be gone. Like, Lord, I don't want to be here anymore. So let's, let's make sure that we are actually supposed to be here so if you got a Bible, go to John 17. We're going to look here. This is the high priestly prayer. These are the words of Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 11. This is John 17, 11. Jesus is saying here, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. He's talking to his Father. Holy Father, keep them, us, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and none of them have lost, except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, so they also may be sanctified in the truth. So, so Jesus makes it very clear that his intention is for you and for me to remain here in this world. We're not to be taken out. So Mike, go ahead and cancel that. We're not going to need it. You stop looking into it. Yes. <clears throat> you know, I joke about it, but sometimes we don't know how to practically live out that idea that we're in the world and we're not of the world. Yeah, it's a cool, fancy bumper sticker, not of this world. And I see it all the time. And I don't think people have any clue what it means or how to practically live it out. Because there are extremes of this idea that can be very debilitating to our mission here. For example, sometimes there are well-meaning Christians that take not loving the things of the world to a place that is not helpful at all. That is to say, they remove themselves as much as possible from the world around them. They so desperately want to honor the Lord and avoid sinful behavior that they alienate themselves from the world and more importantly from the people of the world that we are called to reach. You've heard these people described as being so earthly minded or so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Their mind is so fixed on the Lord, just take me out of here, that they've forgotten why they're here. That's not okay, my friends. Jesus himself told you, you're here for a reason. He told God the Father, don't take them out of here because I've got something for them. But in a way, these people, since God won't remove them from the world, they remove themselves from the world and become unable to reach the lost. That's a bad place to be. That's one extreme. And it needs to be considered in how you make your decisions, how you spend your time, what you will and will not do here on the earth. But the other extreme is to participate so much in the things of the world that you end up justifying your sinful behavior of being out among the lost. You're so in the world that you get caught up in the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. And the worst part of it is you use the fact that you're doing God's work among the lost to justify and validate your sin. That's the other extreme. Both bad places to be. Because, as I said, they both keep you from doing what you're actually meant to be here for. Now, those are just two potential pitfalls that we need to avoid as we're here on this earth. But how do we stay on track? That's the question that we keep asking. Is like, How do I stay in this world and stay on that course? Well, I think John gives us a very, very big hint in verse 17. When you go back to verse 17... Sanctify, no, that's not it. I think I put the wrong verse. 18, good 18, man. sorry. There we go. As you sent me into the world, that's as God the Father sent Jesus into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus then sending his believers into the world. Whoever does the will of of God. Go back to uh, 1 John 17. First John 1, 2, 17. There we go. So the world's passing away, we know that, along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here he's making a distinction between 
the things of God that will last forever and the things of the world that are what? They're passing away. They're they're, they're no longer going to remain. So we stay on track then by doing the will of the Father. Which is the verse that we just looked at in John 17. Why did he tell us to stay here? Just as I you have sent me to the world, I am what? I've sent them into the world. What are we supposed to do here in the world? What is our main purpose for being here in this world? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are here on this earth to make disciples. Would you agree with me? Would you agree with me that that's our primary reason for being here? Yes. Now, let's think about this for a second. <clears throat> if everyone in the world made one disciple, is that enough for the world to be reached? If every Christian, let's just say, let's say there's two billion Christians in the world. If every one of them made one disciple, would that be enough to reach the world? How many people are in the world? Seven billion and growing? So if two billion only made one, is it enough to reach the world? No. No. And that's a very, very generous, very generous <laughs> to the Christian world to say that one, two billion Christians are going to make a disciple. Because if we're being honest, that's just not happening. So if one billion Christians make one disciple, we're reaching a fraction of the world, Right? So what really, what kind of disciples do we need to make? Disciples who make disciples who... It's called reproduction, right? Everything that has purpose and life in this world reproduces. Plants, animals, everything that has life reproduces. Humans... But spiritual reproduction is something that doesn't get a lot of attention, does it? That's right. No, I I can see I'm hitting a nerve now, and that's okay. We are meant to be people who point others to God. And to show them who God is. And then bring them along with us on our journey and show them how to show others who will then in turn tell others. The challenge is, my friends, is the church in general, and we talked about this a little bit last week, defines discipleship differently than the Bible does. The church sees discipleship growing in our maturity as Knowing this. If you know this, you are a mature believer. And do you need to know this to be a mature believer? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, this is foundational. Like That has to be a, a constant pursuit. But is that really the, 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 the real evidence of a mature believer? If what we just said is true, 
that we are called primarily to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples, then just knowing this can't be the mark that we look at for maturity, can it? What can be the mark of maturity if that is our purpose for being here? Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, right? You see where I'm going with this? Now listen, <laughs> this is, a, this is a, in a lot of ways, completely upside down from how we do church. And I say we, our church and just about every church in America, <laughs> because we've been trained to do it that way. We've been trained to see that as long as we know what this says and we, we try to serve here and you give and, and you, you, you grow in your understanding of who God is, then you're, you're on the right track. And, and I would say that is true. You're on the right track. But all of those things are not an end in themselves. They are meant to position us then to actually make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the end. We've gotten it backwards though. Let me, let me close with this. The reason I'm making a big deal out of this is because this is what we ought to be focusing on. And, and I think we're, as a church, we're taking steps in that direction. You've heard us talk over the last year about obedience-based discipleship, about hearing the Word of God and doing something with it. It's not just enough to kind of sit and go, oh, that was a great message. Like, oh, what am I going to do in response? You know, we've talked about having like a, an I will statement or some way in which I'm going to respond to the Word of God. But in the context of what we're talking about here, and being in this world and not loving it, we've got to find a way to, to, to exist here, to be aware of how the enemy is trying to distract us. And those three things, those three broad categories of the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life are designed to distract us from our actual purpose here. That's how I'm tying this all in, right? That's why I kind of spent much time on the back end with that. All of those things are meant to keep us from doing our primary mission of being here. So, as we do exist here in this world, continue to participate in the world without getting sucked in, without removing ourselves and alienating ourselves, Jesus advocates for us. He advocates protection against the evil one. And he sanctifies us. That's what he said in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He, he prayed on our behalf. Protect them. Sanctify them. The word of God is truth. So yes, this is important. It will wash over us. And, and Jesus advocates for our protection from the evil one. That's a beautiful thing. He sanctifies us. He matures us. And he grows us. And he causes us to be less like that sin-ridden portion of us, that self, that flesh that remains, and to be more like him. So what we love matters, my friends. What we love matters. And what we choose to love has eternal consequences. So our desire should be to love to do the will of God who sent us to go and make disciples of all nations. So I'm going to end there. And there should be a lot of question marks in your mind right now. I hope there are. How do I do that? I hope I've made it a compelling enough argument like this is what we ought to do. Now you should be asking yourselves, how do I do that? Because I'm not or I'm struggling or I want to get better at it. 
And if you find yourself in that category, my, my challenge to you is to come talk to me and see how we can improve in that. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you, Lord, for the patience of, of my brothers and sisters this morning. I know that was a challenging and a bit longer message, Lord, but I, I just thank you for the way in which you have communicated so clearly to us the reason why you've got us here on this planet, Lord. We don't just, the moment we profess faith, get pulled out. <laughs> no, you, you've kept us here for a reason and for a purpose. And God, that, that reason and that purpose has been made more clear to us this morning. Your desire is for us to make your, make your name famous throughout the world. That your name will be glorified everywhere. And part of the way in which we do that, Lord, is by telling other people about you. What you've done in our lives. Why we can trust in you. Why you're good and perfect and loving and forgiving. And there are ways that we can do that, Father, that are pleasing to you, that are effective. We want to know how to do that, Lord. I pray you'd grow us in that. God, help us to see how the, the, the things of this world distract us. Each one of us have different ways in which we are swayed by the rule of this world. We all have different areas where we tend to struggle more than others. Help us to identify those areas, Lord, and to see the gospel solution in running to you, in confessing, in seeing the things that last forever as more significant than the things that are perishing in this world. And letting that shape how we use our time and spend our resources. Give us an eternal mindset as we're here on this finite planet. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.